Gal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Jane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I'm the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the July 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm excited to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode, we're circling around to a wide variety of topics that we've previously discussed, including a number of important updates on businesses discriminating against LGBTQ plus people, collegiate sports, and gender-affirming healthcare. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, especially in the wake of June 30th, our big Supreme Court day. Our big Supreme Court day, and that's exactly where we're going to kick things off with a quick recap. So if you don't mind taking us through once again. Okay, this is a, a quickie because we did a podcast devoted entirely to the June 30 Supreme Court doings. The most significant is probably, of course, the merits ruling uh, in 303 Creative versus Alenis, the case we've talked about a lot over the past year. The court decided that the website designer has a First Amendment right to refuse to deal with same-sex couples. And they got there entirely on a free speech analysis. They did not grant cert on the religious free exercise question. They did not grant cert on the question whether they should overrule employment division versus Smith. They just focused on first amendment speech. They agreed with the 10th circuit that designing websites is a form of speech of communication, but the 10th circuit called it pure speech. And therefore the compelling state interest uh, test applies, strict scrutiny applies. And they decided basically that the state had failed to show that they had to go after 303 Creative, which they hadn't done. I mean, the, the interesting thing, and a lot of the commentary about this case is centered around the fact that the court has totally upended its standing tests. I mean, this was a case where it seemed clear to everybody that standing was entirely hypothetical. Laurie Smith had never done a website for marriages. That had not been part of her business. And she had never been asked by a same-sex couple to do it. She never turned away a same-sex couple who did it. She claimed she didn't discriminate against gay customers, but she had a religious belief about what's a valid marriage and what's not a valid marriage. And she felt that designing a website for same-sex marriage would in effect be saying something that she doesn't believe. And this is how Justice Gorsuch framed it. And this is how Alliance Defending Freedom who was representing Lori Smith framed it on their cert petition. They turned it into a question, can the state compel an artist to speak a message that the artist doesn't want to speak? That's assuming that a website designer is an artist. And I think a lot of website designers do identify as graphic artists. So I suppose she's an artist, but the point is the court wasn't deciding about wedding cakes. The court wasn't deciding about who participates in which sports or locker rooms or any other of the issues that are floating around that people have religious views about. It was just 
focusing on the stipulated facts in this case. And that's the point we've got to keep pushing because we've already seen just in the, the few weeks since this opinion came out, we've seen people trying to rely on it for all kinds of stuff that it doesn't relate to, unless you're speaking on a very high general level, as opposed to the specific level of the Supreme Court being a court that was deciding a case based on stipulated facts between the parties. They stipulated that she was an artist. They stipulated that she wanted to do marriage websites and was planning to do it and would do it if she was assured that she wouldn't run into trouble because she would be refusing same-sex couples as customers. Uh, it seems to me that to call her a public accommodation is sort of weird. It's like saying that an artist who paints portrait, paints pictures on commission can't just say, I only want to paint certain kinds of pictures. I mean, I can understand that, but I don't think we can necessarily call that a public accommodation, which means you're just selling goods and services to the public at large without any, any discretion as to whom you can take and whom you can't. I remember in my legal ethics course when I was in law school and people will say, what a memory he has. That's like more than 50 years ago. But uh, I remember one of the things they told us is as a lawyer, you're not a public accommodation as a lawyer. You can decide which people you want to represent. You don't have to take anyone who walks into your office or calls you up. You can choose. You're a professional. Well, how about a website designer? Perhaps it's, it's silly to call her a public accommodation. But at any rate, uh, the opinion's out there. The court has basically said that if you are selling a good or service that has a heavy expressive component to it, you have a First Amendment right not to express what you don't want to express. And it's a matter of freedom of speech. It's not a matter of freedom of religion, because this was decided under the free speech provision. The reason why you have an objection to same-sex marriage is not relevant. As long as you have a sincere objection to same-sex marriage, the state can't compel you to speak a message you don't want to speak. And their heavy reliance here was on the Boy Scouts case and on the St. Patrick's Day Parade case, uh, both cases in which the court said that someone had a First Amendment right not to comply with public accommodation laws when it came to issues of sexual orientation or homosexuality. So we've got that string of, of precedent out there, and now 303 Creative is another knot on that string. And we'll have to see how far it goes. But we got a hint. The Supreme Court took two other actions on June 30th that we'll just recap briefly. One is it granted a petition for cert in the case of Klein against Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industry. Klein is Melissa Klein, who with her husband, Aaron, owns a bakery in Oregon, and they refused to bake a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. And it ended up in a state court lawsuit and a determination that they were in violation of the state's public accommodation law, which covers sexual orientation. And a significant fine was levied against them. They eventually brought their case up to the uh, State Court of Appeals, which affirmed an administrative law judge decision, which had been affirmed by the commissioner of the Bureau uh, of the, you know, the Bureau of Labor and Industry. The commissioner is the next level of appeal from uh, the administrative law judge. And the commissioner affirmed the administrative law judge and the Court of Appeal affirmed the commissioner and uh, the Supreme Court of Oregon denied review of the case. They have docket control, just like the US Supreme Court. They don't have to take the case. Uh, so a cert petition was filed directly 
with the Supreme Court. It was pending while 303 Creative was taking place, and it was pending a long time because it's one of the petitions they were holding until they decided you know, what to do with 303 Creative. But then on June 30th, they vacated the Oregon Court of Appeals decision and granted cert and remanded the case for further consideration in light of 303 Creative. So in order to vacate a decision, I assume you need a majority of the court to vacate a decision. You only need four justices to grant cert, but I would think to vacate a lower court opinion, you need a majority. Uh, so that means at least five justices thought it was worth sending the case back to uh, have further consideration. To what extent does the course decision in 303 Creative say any goods or services that are used for some sort of expressive purpose? Because we're not even told what, if there was going to be any writing on this cake. But obviously, a wedding cake is a celebratory item when used at a wedding. I mean, you don't get a wedding cake in order to throw it into the face of your new spouse, <laughs> unless you're the Marx Brothers. I don't know. But uh, in this case, the court is perhaps sending a signal. We don't know. We'll see how this one evolves. It probably won't evolve far enough for the Supreme Court to get involved with it directly until the term after next, I would think, because this is going to get remanded to the Court of Appeals of Oregon, and perhaps they'll remand it to the Bureau for uh, because they serve in an appellate capacity in, in the uh, Court of Appeals. So they would go to the Bureau where they can do further fact-finding or whatever, and it will probably take a while till it gets to the point of showing up on the Supreme Court's uh, petition list for a new cert petition. So probably not until the following year, but we don't know. And then there was a third action that they took. And this one was, I think, a bit unexpected, but not totally unexpected. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals had ruled in Kincaid versus Williams uh, last year that a, uh, an incarcerated person, to use the terminology we're now using, an incarcerated person who is transgender, uh, who had a complaint against the prison about how she was being dealt with, filed an action under various causes of action, but one of them was the Americans with Disabilities Act. He said, I have gender dysphoria, that's a disability. And the Americans with Disabilities Act has a provision that appears on its face, people would say, looking at it, to rule out the idea that gender dysphoria or being a transgender would be considered a disability under the statute. Certainly that's what the sponsors of this provision intended. It was added as a floor amendment to the ADA. But the wording it used is now kind of archaic. The ADA dates back to 1990. And uh, they don't use the term gender dysphoria. They don't even use the term transgender. They use transsexualism and other gender identity disorders that are not based on a physical defect of some sort. And in other words, they, they use language of the time. And the Fourth Circuit looked at that and said, well, that means they didn't rule out gender dysphoria being a, a disability because it's a, it's a new diagnosis. It didn't exist back then. It has much overlap conceptually with what the common meaning was of the terms they use, but it's not total. And we think giving the statute a textualist reading, we think that uh, gender dysphoria is not ruled out 
as a disability. And therefore the district court made a mistake here and the case has to go back to consider the possible ADA complaint because the ADA requires any entity in prisons or an entity that are covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act, they have to accommodate disabilities. And some of what this uh, plaintiff was asking for were accommodations to the fact that she was transgender and they were refusing them, uh, especially with respect to housing. So uh, there was a petition for cert filed and the Supreme Court denied the petition for cert, leaving intact the Fourth Circuit decision. And it may partly be explained by the fact that there's no circuit split on this yet. There are a handful of district court decisions around the country, most recently have said that that exclusionary language does not exclude gender dysphoria as a disability. But this is the first case that had gotten up to the Court of Appeals level. And uh, perhaps the Supreme Court thought it would be premature to grant cert here. It drew a dissent from the denial of cert by Justices Alito and Thomas. Alito said, look, this is a pressing issue. Why should the people in the Fourth Circuit be under one rule and the people in the rest of the country be under a different rule, which is the way it's looking, the way the district court decisions were going? So uh, he said they should have taken it and uh, definitively answered. And he said, uh, if in fact, uh, gender dysphoria should be covered, then people with gender dysphoria all over the country should be covered by the ADA, not just in the Fourth Circuit. But if, and he said, and there's a strong argument the other way, if it shouldn't be covered, then why should the people in the Fourth Circuit have it covered and not in the rest of the country? So, uh, so he argued, but he obviously didn't convince uh, at least two other members of the court in order to get a cert grant. So we have those three actions coming out of June 30th, all of them of consequence, although 303 Creative probably of most consequence, especially when you consider the first case that we're going to be discussing, which was decided about a week earlier. Thank you for that recap. And again, we had that rapid response podcast for those folks who are looking for a deeper dive on any of those three cases. That episode was uploaded July 10th. You've already given us a preview about the first law notes case that we're going to be spotlighting this month that it also addresses the issue of businesses discriminating against LGBTQ plus people. But tell us a little bit more about what happened in the Fifth Circuit. Okay, this is the Braidwood case, and we discussed it when uh, Justice uh, Judge Reed O'Connor of the District Court issued his decision. It's quite a while ago now. This is, in some ways, like 303 Creative in the sense that it's a made-up case. Okay, we've got a business called Braidwood Management Incorporated. They run a bunch of, I think it's medical clinics and medical supply businesses, down in Texas, and they're owned by a guy named Stephen Hotze, who's a, who's a doctor, and who is a conservative Christian activist. Uh, I think he's, he may be on talk radio, as well as everything else. But anyway, he says he considers his businesses to be an expression of his religious beliefs. He runs them consistent with his religious beliefs, and uh, he considers them to be Christian businesses or religious businesses. And uh, Judge O'Connor, the district court judge, uh, just adopted that terminology, said this is a Christian business. And so after the Bostock decision, in which the Supreme Court ruled in 2020 that sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination claims are actionable under Title VII, 
the EEOC, after the Biden administration, <laughs> remember uh, President Biden on his first day in office issued an executive order and he said, I told all the exec executive agencies, the executive branch, he said, I believe that the Bostock, reasoning of the Bostock decision should apply uh, potentially to any federal law or regulation involving discrimination because of sex. So I want you to take a look and if it's appropriate, issue new regulations, issue guidelines, uh, review your procedures and your criteria for dealing with discrimination complaints. And the EEOC did that and they came, came out with the published guidance. Now the EEOC is one of those agencies that was not authorized in its statute to issue regulations. It can issue rules of procedure and it issues guidelines in order to inform uh, the public, to uh, inform employers who are subject to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and other anti-discrimination statutes that are administered by the EEOC because it, it also has uh, some other statutes, it has the Age Discrimination Act, for example. We wanna let them know what we think about this because people come to us, they file complaints. In fact, under Title VII, you're supposed to file a complaint with the agency first and exhaust administrative remedies. So we gotta let people know how we're gonna handle the complaints and what kinds of claims we're gonna investigate. The Supreme Court has given us the Bostock decision, but as the judge for the Fifth Circuit in this case, uh, Circuit Judge Jerry Smith, who wrote the opinion uh, for the Fifth Circuit said, that the Bostock decision is in some ways very narrowly written, in some ways very mysteriously written, because the court tells us all the things it's not deciding. It's, a, it's a, the only question for us, the Supreme Court, was we've got these three cases coming up from three different circuits, two involving gay uh, men, one involving a transgender woman, uh, all of whom were fired under circumstances which they believe show that it was because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And the question for us as to which there's a circuit split is whether a, uh, a gay or trans person finding themselves in that situation can file suit under Title VII. Are they covered by Title VII? And if our answer is yes, then the case goes back to those lower courts and all the other issues that come up in a Title VII case can come up. But all we are being asked here is whether the prohibition in Title VII of employment discrimination because of an individual's sex includes their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And we say yes. And that's what we're deciding. And he specifically said we're not deciding anything about bathrooms or locker rooms or anything like that or dress codes. That's all to be worked out later. All we're deciding is you can bring an action. And what the employer's defenses are. Well, what if the employer is a person of a religious faith that rejects homosexuality or uh, gender identity? We're not gonna tell you in this opinion how to do that because that's not an issue in this case. Although it actually was an issue in the case of the transgender funeral director because she worked for a funeral home and they had a dress code and they had an owner who said for religious reasons, I just can't go along with this. And he claimed under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, he should have a defense. And uh, the district court in that case of the Harris Funeral Homes, the district court said, you do have a defense. In fact, you have a great defense 
I think you've probably violated Title VII, but the Religious Freedom Restoration Act trumps it. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act says that the government may not impose a substantial burden on your free exercise of religion unless it has a compelling interest. And there is no less intrusive alternative with respect to your free exercise of religion. And the trial court, in fact, threw out the case on that basis. It got, got appealed to the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit said, we agree with the trial judge that you've proven a Title VII violation, but we don't think the Rifford defense is any good here. And then the case went up and the funeral home appealed. And it only went up. The only question presented was whether there's a cause of action under Title VII. So the Supreme Court did not grant review on the RIFRA question because they, it wasn't in the cert petition, which was kind of silly on their part. So uh, what, what Justice Gorsuch said, when an employer has religious objections to complying with Title VII, there are three different avenues for the employer to uh, seek to vindicate their views. One is there's a religious organization's exception under Title VII. It's right there in the statute. It says that a religious institution can prefer to employ co-religionists, members of their religion. And presumably that would be members of their religion in good standing. I don't know. That's a matter of interpretation, how, uh, how broadly or narrowly you interpret that. But they can prefer to employ members of the religion of that religious institution. In other words, a, uh, a synagogue can say, you know, we'd rather hire a rabbi who's Jewish. Makes sense. The cantor too. The janitor, well, yeah. There was a decision involving uh, the Mormon church uh, and they owned various institutions in Salt Lake City. And, and yeah, you can require that they be in good standing with the church if they wanna be employed by you, if the church is your employer. That's a religious institution exception. And then there's the ministerial exception, which has been developed as an interpretation of the first amendment by the Supreme Court uh, that says that if you're a religious employer and you have a religious mission, the, the federal government has nothing to say and should have nothing to say about whom you hired to carry out your religious mission. So that's the ministerial exception. If an employee has a ministerial function, which broadly defined is a function of carrying out the religious mission of the religious employer, then the government can't interfere. Title VII doesn't apply at all, which is distinct from the religious institution exception in the statute, because that only has to do with discrimination based on religion. It doesn't have to do with discrimination based on the other prohibited grounds of discrimination under Title VII. It doesn't mean that religious institutions have a right under Title VII to discriminate on the basis of sex or sexual, uh, well, sex or uh, age or you know any of the other prohibited categories. But the interesting thing is that when you're talking about sex, as opposed to discrimination based on religion, there are, are real issues because of you know, the way that religion treats sex. And that's why I said before that the uh, religious institution 
exception is somewhat ill-defined. Uh, can you uh, exclude someone even though they claim to be a member of your religion if they're not complying with the tenets of your religion? So, you know, there, there are real issues here. And then there's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, Congress said that there is a defense available to people who have religious objections to complying with federal law. The defense is that it imposes a substantial burden on their free exercise of religion. And if they can make a credible claim to that effect, and the courts have always said, we're not gonna inquire into the sincerity or genuineness of people's religious beliefs. So it's, we have to basically take them on trust when they say that they have a religious belief. The government has to have a compelling justification to do it. And there has to be no less intrusive alternative available. And uh, the court, in fact, has used that uh, approach under the First Amendment. Remember, refers a statute. And we have this case that you've heard us mention many times if you listen to these podcasts, Employment Division versus Smith. Dating back over 30 years, the Supreme Court said, if you have a neutral law, a law that on its face is neutral with respect to religion, and it's of general application, people have to comply with it, even if they have religious objections, as long as there's some rational basis for the government to maintain that law. And with the rational basis test, the burden really falls on uh, the individual who's claiming an exemption, who has to say that uh, this law is not rational, that the government could have no reasonable uh, grounds for having such a law. Uh, the main exceptions to Employment Division versus Smith is you prove that even though the law on its face is neutral, you look at its legislative history and you show it was adopted for the specific purpose of prohibiting someone's religious practice. And we had the, uh, the case of uh, the Santeria, uh, you know, the, the uh, religious practice that includes killing chickens, something like that. And there was a, a an ordinance that was passed uh, banning killing chickens this way. And on its face, it's neutral with respect to religion, but it was very clear that it was, it was adopted for the purpose of outlawing this common practice of sanitaria. And so the court said, even though it was neutral on its face, the First Amendment applies because it was motivated, the intent to pass the law was to burden religion. Uh, so uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed in response to Employment Division versus Smith and it says the federal government basically will not impose a substantial burden on someone's religion unless they have a compelling reason to do so. But it's phrased as that the government won't do that. And it's phrased as a defense to an action by the government. And that's important to me because I think that we have another made up case here in the Braidwood case. We have another case where uh, there's a real standing issue. And in fact, the Fifth Circuit opinion spends a lot of time on standing. And uh, they sort of anticipate what the Supreme Court's doing in standing with 303 Creator. In fact, I've seen uh, an opinion come out from another court in a case that didn't, doesn't have anything directly to do with LGBT issues, where the court says, well, now the Supreme Court has told us that uh, someone can have standing if they just have a reasonable fear that what they were doing might uh, incur the wrath of the government. 
it's 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 really weird that standing has been stood on its head and i think we're going to see a lot of articles coming out at the law reviews about how 303 creative changes the law of standing i mean this is not like masterpiece cake shop where an a, an actual complaint was filed against the baker for turning down the people or uh, the, the Klein case on which they've just sent back to Oregon on which they turned down a lesbian couple who then went and filed the discrimination claim against them. No one has filed a claim against Braidwood. And uh, the court uh, summarizes, they, they summarize all the things that uh, Hatsi, uh, Hatsi says, he will not knowingly employ someone who violates the biblical prohibition on sodomy, for example, and that's uh, the same-sex marriage is anathema to his religious beliefs. He won't recognize uh, as valid a same-sex marriage. In addition to his religious beliefs, he points out that the state of Texas has not revised its marriage statutes in reaction to Obergefell. They still have the same old marriage statutes on the books, including a ban on same-sex marriage. It's just they as a matter of constitutional law, they overlook it, and if Obergefell fell over the gets ruled someday, then it will spring to life again. So he said he's complying with Texas, Texas policy. He's he's a Texas businessman, and he says, and my employees may only use the restroom consistent with their biological sex. You know, he's he's saying this guidance put out by the EEOC, I'm violating all the stuff they say in that guidance about how to apply Bostock under Title VII. I'm violating all that. Now, none of my employees has ever complained. I've never knowingly hired someone who would have any grounds to complain, although, you know, employers can end up hiring people and discovering they're gay later on or trans. And he says, I've never been contacted by the EEOC to try to investigate me, although now I'm being open about this. Maybe they would target me for investigation. But he says, I'm in court because I want you to tell me that I have a right to run my business consistent with my Christian views. I want you to give me a declaratory judgment, and I want you to enjoin the EEOC from ever taking any enforcement action against me because of the policies I follow based on my religious views. And I believe I have this right under the First Amendment, and I believe I have this right under RIFRA. I mean, he's not claiming that he's a religious institution because they're not defined to include businesses. Even businesses owned by churches are not religious institutions unless they are run for the specific purpose of ministry of some sort. And, and there you sometimes get into fuzzy lines about how to classify for purposes of the religious institution exemption. Uh, he can't claim a ministerial exemption for his employees because uh, his business is not evangelical uh, advocacy or something like that. His business is running some medical clinics and medical supply stuff. So uh, ministerial exceptions out in his case. The religious organization exception is probably out, even though the court refers to it as a religious business or religious corporation. Uh, it's certainly, if it's incorporated, it's incorporated under the general business laws. It's not incorporated as a religious corporation. So it's either RIFRA, which would give him a defense if he was investigated, or it's uh, the First Amendment if Employment Division versus Smith doesn't apply. Now, Judge O'Connor decided first that Employment Division versus Smith doesn't apply. 
because he looked at Title VII and he said, Title VII doesn't apply to small businesses. Title, you have to have at least 15 employees to be covered by Title VII. Title VII doesn't apply to uh, religious institutions. Title VII, uh, in terms of discrimination because of sex, they have a bona fide occupational qualification exception. It doesn't apply if sex is a bona fide occupational qualification. Therefore, I think there are, there are exceptions, and therefore it's not a law of general application. And if it's not a law of general application, guess what? Strict scrutiny. No, compelling state interest test. And so O'Connor felt there's a First Amendment violation here. These guidelines, if, if applied to uh, Dr. Hatzi's business, would violate the First Amendment. And he says under RIFRA, clearly, if the EEOC were to bring an enforcement action against him, it would violate RIFRA. Well, not necessarily. It would violate RIFRA if he raised the defense under RIFRA and they could not show a compelling interest. Now this goes up to the fifth, the EEOC appealed because uh, Judge O'Connor issued a nationwide injunction against EEOC enforcing uh, Title VII against any business entity that has religious objections. I mean, this was gonna tear a big hole in Title VII. So because any employer, uh, you didn't have to be a religious organization, any employer that would raise religious objections. I, I assume that a, a big corporation with millions of shareholders probably couldn't make that claim, but closely held businesses like Hobby Lobby, for example, or a Braidwood Management, which was wholly owned by Mr. Dr. Hatzi, could make that argument. Uh, there was also, there was a co-plaintiff in the case. There was a, uh, an unaffiliated Christian church, Bear Creek Bible Church, which was a co-plaintiff with Hatsi. And uh, O'Connor looked at them and said, get out of here. He said, you've got the religious institution exemption. You've got the ministerial exemption. You don't need anything else. And he said they didn't have standing. Uh, and that was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit, but they were both wrong. <laughs> the church did have standing, I would think, possibly, it would probably be less hypothetical than, than Hatsi's business. But in any event, it goes up to the Fifth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit says, we're not gonna decide the constitutional question. We're gonna decide this case under RIFRA. And first of all, we're gonna decide, although Braidwood has standing here, we're gonna say that the injunctions that were issued by the judge were too broad and vague he certified, Judge O'Connor certified classes, and they said his class descriptions, they're so broad and vague. Uh, we think it goes far beyond what a district court can do here, uh, at least based on uh, the facts that he had before him. So we're going to narrow it down and say his injunctive relief may only apply to the plaintiff, to Braidwood, which cabins it. You know, uh, it's still injunctive relief against the EEOC. And we're going to say that because of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the EEOC can't go after him. Because we're going to use the methodology 
that the Supreme Court used in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, where they said uh, Catholic, Catholic services that, that ran the uh, foster care agency and didn't want to deal with same-sex couples uh, to uh, certify them to be foster parents. We look at the city of Philadelphia and we see that about two dozen other agencies in the city of Philadelphia, Catholic social services is the only one that's refusing to deal with same-sex couples. The only other one that was refusing initially backed down when they were threatened with the loss of their contract by the city. So it was really just Catholic social services. And the court said, we don't see that the uh, city had a compelling justification to force Catholic social services to deal with same-sex couples if their compelling interest was to make sure that same-sex couples who wanted to be foster parents could be certified, et cetera, there were two dozen other agencies. We don't see a compelling justification. In other words, they said the compelling justification has to be for refusing to grant an exception because you had a law or the way they interpreted the contract that the city had with foster care agencies uh, that reserved discretion in the city to waive the non-discrimination requirements. So the issue here is what is your compelling reason for not waiving the requirements for them when there were so many other agencies? Uh, all right, so the Fifth Circuit says here, all right, the, uh, the EEOC comes in and says, we have a compelling uh, justification here in protecting employees of Braidwood from discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, it's, it's sort of hard to make the compelling interest case based on what Congress intended in 1964 in, in Bostock, when the court interpreted the language almost in a vacuum compared to the legislative history. They didn't look at the legislative history. They said, just giving them the words their plain meaning, we think sexual orientation and gender identity are covered. Does that mean that the federal government has a compelling interest? Well, let's assume for purposes of discussion that as long as it's covered under Title VII, they have a compelling interest in general in stamping out workplace discrimination. But we've been told by the EEOC in this case that they don't go out looking for religious employers to investigate. The EEOC is mainly a reactive agency. Complaints come in and then they do investigations. And furthermore, they said, we don't see that, this, that the agency has a compelling interest to clamp down on this one employer with 70 employees. And they have a handful of businesses in Texas. They have a total of 70 employees. They've never had a complaint of discrimination. And we're told by the EEOC that they instruct their staff that if there's a religious free exercise issue bubbling around in a case, proceed cautiously make sure you absolutely have to go forward. Try to conciliate it. Try not to enter into litigation, et cetera. Try to use a light hand. And so the Fifth Circuit says, we don't see that there's a compelling justification for this. If Hotsey wants to run his business this way, he should have a right to do so under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But it seems to me that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act on its face doesn't come into play until the EEOC takes some kind of action, or at the very least initiates an investigation. Because the way the act is phrased, it's to be raised as a defense to a government enforcement activity. So to issue an injunction now 
in a totally hypothetical case, it strikes me as absurd. So, so the first issue is, is the EEOC going to seek on bank review? I don't think enough time has gone by to know that yet. Uh, are they going to file a cert petition? Would you want this case to come before this Supreme Court now? It's a very difficult strategic question. But the Braidwood case, it's, it's like a time bomb sitting there now. It's a published decision by the Fifth Circuit. In fact, it was rushed into publication pretty quickly. It, it showed up on Westlaw and Lexus almost immediately, and I'm sure it'll be in fed forth before you can blink an eyelid. So, uh, so we'll see. But uh, I don't know, this, this case on so many grounds, I and mean, we're seeing this around the country in, in quite a few of these cases, that people are bringing cases, pre-enforcement declaratory judgment cases, where traditional rules of standing would say it's premature. It hasn't even gone into effect yet in some cases. It isn't ripe for review because it will depend on facts. And I would think that in a RIFRA case, we would want to see facts. We can't decide as a matter of law whether uh, there's a compelling uh, interest or more importantly, I mean, even if you, if you assume a compelling interest in prohibiting discrimination because of the statute, there's still the issue of, is there a less intrusive alternative that could achieve that interest? And the issue will be different looking at the nature of the business, the industry they're in, or whatever. So I don't see how that stuff can be decided on a pre-enforcement uh, thing without, with no factual record at all. So... Interesting case. We'll have to keep a close eye on that. Interesting and, and a troubling trend, as you point out. So shifting gears to our second law notes case from public discrimination to the issue of sports. We've spoken a lot about transgender athletes over the past couple of years, but today we're looking at collegiate athletes who are harassed or bullied on the basis of their actual or perceived sexual orientation. What's going on in the Ninth Circuit? Okay, big news out of the Ninth Circuit. On June 13th, the Ninth Circuit, dealing with a question of first impression for the circuit and a question that hasn't been decided by the Supreme Court yet, decided that the reasoning of the Bostock case applies to Title IX of the Education Amendments, which is very important. It's, it's a point that's been hotly disputed, uh, especially by uh, judges appointed by uh, Donald Trump or George W. Bush. They look at Bostock and they say Bostock was an employment discrimination case. It was uh, under Title VII. Uh, it is not relevant to Title IX. But we have a history in many circuits, and even at the Supreme Court level, of saying that in interpreting Title IX, which bans discrimination on the basis of sex by educational institutions that receive federal funding, we've said look to Title VII precedents on sex discrimination. Uh, certainly, when we're talking about hostile environment sexual harassment, we've said when students are raising this under Title IX or whether employees are raising it under Title VII, the same analysis should apply. You know, is it severe or pervasive? Does it affect the terms and conditions of employment or does it affect or interfere with the ability to get an education or to make use of the educational facilities of the institution or whatever? 
And so it should really be a no-brainer. And, and quite a few district courts have just sort of automatically said in, in this circuit, the precedent is we follow Title VII precedents in interpreting Title IX. Therefore, Title IX forbids discrimination by educational institutions on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. You still have to work out what that means, as we see in the Braidwood case, uh, what it means. It's one thing to say that the, these claims are covered. It's another thing to say how they play out and what defenses may apply. Uh, all right, in this case, we had a, a student, Michael Grabowski, a talented young athlete who was given an athletic scholarship to the University of Arizona. He shows up for the pre-semester tryouts. He was specifically recruited for particular teams. So he had, he had to report early together with the other athletes to prepare for the fall seasons. Uh, he was a track and field person. And uh, from day one, he's getting all this homophobic, homophobic harassment from his teammates. They perceived him as gay. I mean, nowhere in the opinion or in the case, as far as we know, has he said anything about what his sexual orientation actually is. But he said, it's clear from what they're saying about me and what they're doing, that they perceive me as being gay. And he said, this is driving me crazy. I mean, it's constant. It's all the time. Nasty, nasty name calling and all this kind of thing. And then they, they put some kind of video up on a team chat which he felt was humiliating and disgusting. And he was complaining to the coaches and the coaches were just sloughing it off. They weren't doing anything about it. He complained to his father. His father called up the coach. They said, we'll do something, but they did nothing. This continued throughout the year. And uh, he decided over the summer, he's got to resolve this. He's got to do something about this. He contacted the coaches in August for the next season. And he said, look, are you going to do something for me about this? And he said, they, they act with surprise as if they hadn't heard about this before. And then someone said, well, who, who is it who's bothering you? And he named two people in particular. And the response of the coach was, you can't, you can't accuse the two best runners on the team who, uh, it doesn't say specifically in the, uh, in the opinion, but I'm, I'm assuming that the two best runners on the team were African-American and Mr. Grabowski was not because they said that's racist. And he said they immediately started a campaign against him to get him so upset to get him to quit. And finally, they just, they dropped him from the team. And when they dropped him from the team, he lost his athletic scholarship. So he filed suit under Title IX. He filed suit both on a discrimination claim and a retaliation claim. He said when he was complaining about the harassment, he was engaged in protected activity. And they fired him from the team and took away his athletic scholarship. That's retaliation. And it's also discrimination because he was being subjected to sexual harassment, hostile of the hostile environment variety. This wasn't of the uh, you know, sexual imposition variety. And the, uh, the trial judge, well, you know, we, he, they didn't think that he had enough there and, and wasn't sure the Title IX applied to the situation. And uh, the trial judge dismissed the case except for the retaliation claim. And on the retaliation claim, granted summary judgment eventually uh, to, uh, to the school. Uh, he also named the two coaches 
that he was dealing with in their individual capacities as well as their official capacities. And of course, he sued the school. Goes up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said, well, first, we've got to settle the question. It's a first impression question for this circuit. Yes, Title IX applies to sexual orientation and perceived sexual orientation discrimination. And therefore, that means when he was complaining about the harassment, he was engaged in protected activity, which means the retaliation claim is valid, uh, potentially valid. It, it seems we think losing your athletic scholarship is an adverse action. You know, and, and when we're looking at retaliation claims, we're looking to see whether there was an adverse action that would deter people from engaging in protected activity of complaining about violations of their rights. And certainly dropping him from the team and, and taking away his athletic scholarship would do that. However, they said the specific factual allegations he made in support of his hostile environment claim did not meet the high bar that's been established under Title VII and Title IX for actionable harassment. However, at the oral argument, when questioned about this, his attorney said, well, we know more facts could, could we amend the complaint and refile the hostile environment thing? We have more facts. We think we can satisfy the standard. The trial judge had, had dismissed without leave to amend uh, with prejudice. And so they, they uh, countermanded that. And they said, we're going to send it back to the trial court and you can file an amended complaint. And uh, we'll start fresh on, the, uh, on that claim. But it looks like he's probably going to win the case ultimately, at least on the retaliation claim, which means maybe he'll get compensation for the loss of the scholarship. Whether they will re uh, reinstate him on the team is another, I don't know if, if a court would uh, would do that kind of, uh, of thing here. It's, you know, putting him back in a situation. But the other thing that they did in this case is that uh, they said, because there was a lot of stuff here that was questions of first impression and everything, we're going to say that the coaches enjoy qualified immunity. So they're not personally responsible, which means that if he wins the case, the whole burden is going to fall on the university, which will be mad at the coaches. So maybe uh, the coaches uh, will lose their jobs. Who knows? But I think it's important that the Ninth Circuit is weighed in. The Ninth Circuit is by population the largest circuit in the country and probably covers uh, the most geography as well, the entire West Coast plus Alaska and Hawaii. So it's We've got a lot of, uh, of ground covered now under Title IX that's been settled by the Ninth Circuit as applicable under uh, you know, the sexual orientation and gender identity from Boston. An interesting case. And honestly, given the cost of higher education, an expensive one at that. Yes. So we saw a lot of decisions and legislative updates in the past month around access to gender health care, gender affirming health care, particularly for minors. For our third Law Notes case today, we're doing a deeper dive into a few of those updates. What do our listeners need to know about the Arkansas ban that was recently struck down as unconstitutional? Right. Well, Arkansas legislature was the first one to pass one of these bans. And it was actually passed over the veto of Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is now running for the Republican nomination. And the fact that he vetoed probably destroys it. But they overrode his veto. And... Uh, on uh, April 6, 2021, the veto was overridden, and uh, it's now codified as Act 626, no puberty blockers, 
no uh, cross-sex hormones, no sex reassignment surgery or gender-affirming surgery for minors in Arkansas. But it's never gone into effect because uh, it came quickly before a federal district judge, James M. Moody Jr., who issued a preliminary injunction before the act was going to take effect. And the state appealed that to the Eighth Circuit, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed the preliminary injunction. They felt that the judge had uh, gone through the hoops and made the factual findings necessary at this stage of the litigation to uh, have a preliminary injunction there. And uh, went back to the judge and uh, had uh, eight days of hearings, heard from expert witnesses on both sides, although you, you use the word expert advisedly with respect to two of the three experts brought by the state. You know, they, they did bring one person who was an expert, but he was not an expert who made their case because he was not in favor of banning gender-affirming care for minors. <laughs> he, he was someone who had actually started a clinic years ago in Ohio uh, and provides gender-affirming care, including to minors. He just says it should be narrowly focused on the extreme cases, and you've got to be totally sure, and you can't rush into it, blah, 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 blah. And if you look at the legislative history in Arkansas, they were spouting the stuff that we hear in these Republican-controlled legislatures about, oh, minors are being rushed into this, and it's a very profitable thing for the uh, healthcare institutions and all this kind of stuff. There is no evidence in this case that minors in Arkansas are being rushed into puberty blockers prematurely. In fact, the expert testimony on the plaintiff's side, which was all given by people who are experienced in this field and who know what's going on in Arkansas, as opposed to the experts lugged in from out of state by the state, it seems that most kids don't come out to their parents as transgender and seek some kind of professional care until they're a bit older. That is the use of puberty blockers is rare because puberty starts early enough now. You know, it's, it's how the human race has been evolving over the past few hundred years. Puberty is getting earlier and earlier and earlier. Uh, and and uh, so you wait until the first signs of puberty to use puberty blockers. But still, they said most, most kids don't really come out and really seek something until they're like into their teens. They said age 14 is when they show up at the doctor's office. And therefore, puberty blockers are a waste of time. You know, they're in the midst of puberty. Now is the time perhaps uh, to go into cross-sex cross hormones. But they said nobody is performing surgery on minors in Arkansas gender affirmation. It's just not done. The doctors won't do it. You got to be, and it's the WPATH, World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH. They, they publish the standards that everyone follows. And they say, except in very rare exceptional cases, you shouldn't do surgical alteration before 18 of the genitals. Uh, top surgery is possible for uh, female to male transition. But you don't do genital alteration at that age. And the thing that the legislators are all harping on is that it's too early for a minor to decide to make a change that's irrevocable. 
in terms of their reproductive capacity. That's what they're focused on. And if you do gender affirmative surgery, the side effect of that is the end of reproductive capacity. So they're, they're pegging it on that. And the point is, you don't have to ban it for minors in Arkansas because the doctors aren't giving it, unless there's some other reason to do that surgery. And there are other, there are, there are medical reasons sometimes to do that surgery that have nothing to do with gender transition. So uh, the judge looked at the expert testimony and uh, Judge Moody said, it seems very clear that the state is not doing this to protect minors. The state is doing this for political reasons that, that have little to do with the protection of minors or with enforcing medical ethics. All the medical ethics are on the side of the people who wanna provide gender affirming care. Every reputable professional medical association with an interest in this area has approved gender affirming care for minors. They thought they had an ace in the hole when the British government came out, the British Public Health Service came out and said that they're gonna narrowly restrict the availability of puberty blockers uh, for minors who are receiving their health care through the public health service there. And, you know, they have national health insurance in England. They, you don't have lots of private practitioners there. Everyone's covered by the government. And so, but they said they were going to establish special clinics to deal with minors because they've had a flood of minors coming in who want to have gender affirming care. But they're not prohibiting it. They're putting safeguards, they're narrowing it. They're saying it has to be in the context of a clinical supervised situation because we need more data. We, we, we're still speculating about the long-term effects of a lot of this. So we need more data. So we're gonna slot everybody into clinical uh, things with appropriate monitoring and everything, but they're not outlawing it. And it's the same is true in the other countries. There are a handful of other countries that have now issued warnings that they think you shouldn't rush into it and you should be really absolutely sure. And it should be for the most extreme cases of gender dysphoria. You shouldn't do puberty blockers uh, unless you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sure that this is the thing. But they're not banning it. And the Arkansas law is an absolute ban. So uh, the, uh, the judge issued a permanent injunction, ruled in favor of the plaintiffs on all their points, equal protection for the transgender plaintiffs, uh, due process uh, for the parents. Several parents were co-plaintiffs. They said the state is interfering with our ability uh, to raise our children and provide them with the medical care they need. And First Amendment right of the doctor, because one of the things the law did was it said, you can't refer people out of state to get the services. That's a freedom of speech issue for the doctor. Uh, and uh, this is the first, so far the only case to issue a permanent injunction. We've had preliminary injunctions in several places. And in fact, in this issue of law notes, uh, we have preliminary injunctions issued in Indiana, Florida, Kentucky, and Tennessee in this issue. Uh, a little post-publication update, the Tennessee one was stayed by order, a two to one vote of the Sixth Circuit panel that dealt with an emergency stay petition from the state after the trial judge wouldn't stay it. Uh, so, and that's that's the first adverse ruling we've had, but it's just on a stay, it's not on the merits. There is an appeal pending from the preliminary injunction. And the panel said, we are going to try to rule on the appeal by September 30th. Uh, but this was an extremely conservative panel. 
two out of the three judges, one a Trump appointee, one a George W. Bush appointee, very, very conservative panel. And they rejected most of the analysis of the legal analysis of the trial judge in the Tennessee case, which is sort of odd because the trial judge is a Trump appointee who ruled against us on a transgender uh, 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 birth certificate case, which we report on in this issue of Flow Notes as well. Uh, so even this hardline right-wing MAGA judge saw the light on the gender-affirming care. And now he's reversed in a two-to-one ruling by the, uh, by the panel. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. This issue, I mean, it's, it's being litigated all over the country. It's gonna go to other circuits too. There'll eventually be a circuit split. And uh, this is an issue that is likely to get to the Supreme Court, just given the amount of litigation going on. Far from resolved, though it is nice to hear about a few wins, especially at the end of such a difficult legislative season. Yes. Do you have anything stashed away up your sleeve of note for us this month? Yeah, this is this is uh, an interesting case. Four soccer fans went to uh, Soldier Field in Chicago to attend the Confederation of North Central America and Caribbean Association Football Gold Cup Final. And they were shocked and stunned and upset by the homophobic chanting of the crowd in Spanish the fans for the Mexican team who would come up and they, they're looking around at the guards and saying, aren't you going to do something about this? We're in the city of Chicago. We have anti-discrimination laws. Aren't you going to do something? No, they aren't going to do anything. So they did their homework because they planned to go to the next year final cup again, this time wearing jackets that clearly identify them as gay. And they did their homework and they discovered that there are rules governing this kind of stuff with disruptions of the audience and that you could suspend play and make announcements and actually require a team to forfeit their game if their fans are causing the disruption. There's all kinds of procedures and they figured, all right, we'll see what happens. We, we're going to warn them that they should take steps ahead of time, which they ignored, the people who were in charge. Uh, so they went the next year and yep, the chanting and the shouting again. They go to the guards. The guards say, no one told us anything about this. No suspension of the game, no announcement or anything. So they filed suit claiming uh, discrimination in public accommodations on the basis of sexual orientation under Illinois law. And there was a motion to dismiss and US District Judge Lindsay C. Jenkins, and this is probably one of her first major cases because she was appointed by Joe Biden, <laughs> new judge. Uh, she denied the motion to dismiss on June 22. She said they may have a very good case here of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and public accommodations. They would deprive the complete enjoyment of this public accommodation because the uh, people in charge didn't apply their policy. And they had written policies on this. They didn't do what they said they were going to do, at least in their policies. Uh, interesting to see uh, how this comes out. But uh, the ruling says that the second amended complaint met the pleading requirements, stated a plausible discrimination claim under the state anti-discrimination law, denied the motion to dismiss. Uh, I think uh, at this point, the city of Chicago is gonna try to settle because the, the defendants of the Chicago Park District 
and the company, which by contract manages and operates Soldier Field. They're not suing the teams. They're not suing the league. They're suing the people who run the place who have rules that they didn't enforce. That's my own note. Hmm. Kind of the perfect little end cap for our discussion of sports and public accommodation. So thank you yes. for bringing that to us. For our attorney, law student, judge, and legal professional listeners in the audience, it's bar membership renewal season. Please visit lgbtbarny.org backslash membership hyphen plans to join or renew today. Law student membership is free and first year membership is discounted as low as $36 a year. Be a part of one of the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus bar associations in the country. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.